Zechariah for the past summer, and we're kind of here at the end. This is the last sermon we were planning on doing. This is the last um, chapter in this book, and I had considered uh, scrapping this and doing something different in light of um, the news from this weekend, and yet I think it's kind of providential that this is where, this is what the Lord has for us for this morning. So I'm going to read it, and then we'll consider it together for a few moments, okay? So Zechariah 14, verses 1 through 21. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah." Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter." And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited. For there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. And their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beast may be in those camps." Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain." There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. 
And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall, be, there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is a long and confusing and somewhat disturbing uh, passage to consider, but what it is really is an extended meditation on the day of the Lord. You see this language all throughout, on that day. You see it in verse 1, you see it in verse 6, you see it in verse 8, in verse 9, in verse 13, verse 20, even at the end of very at the very end of verse 21, the day, which is this day of the Lord, is a, is a theme that really runs kind of all throughout the Bible. In fact, we're going to start a new sermon series next week going through the uh, book of Philippians. And even in the opening verses of Philippians, Paul talks about the day of Christ Jesus. It's just this theme that kind of runs throughout. And, and when the Bible talks about the day of the Lord or the, or the day of Christ Jesus, it's talking about this day when the Lord himself will return, when Jesus himself will come back. We live between these two comings of Jesus, and we, we say this every single week when we're at the table. We say, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And so that day when Christ comes again, that's the day of the Lord. Now you think, okay, well, that seems so vague. It's, there's no date on the calendar that we can set. We don't know when this date is. It's maybe far off in the future. It may be tomorrow. So what do we even do with this? This feels irrelevant, disconnected from our life, and it, it could be further from the truth. Why is the day of the Lord worth even talking about? Well, I want to give you two reasons. Because the day of the Lord is a day of judgment, and it's a day of renewal. Those are the two ideas I want to explore. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment, and it's a day of renewal. So first, how is it a day of judgment? Well, remember, Zechariah in this passage in particular, and really the whole book, is very symbolic. There's a lot of symbolism and imagery. And the, the opening image that you get in, this, in these, this first few verses is this image of this horrific, violent battle where the nations have come in force to, to take over God's people in Jerusalem. And you look in uh, verse 1, it says, And the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. This is saying that God's people have been overcome, they've been overpowered, and their stuff has been taken from them, and it's been divided and shared among those who have conquered them. And they can do nothing but just helplessly look on and watch their possessions be distributed to those who have, been, who has, who have overpowered them. And then in verse 2, it talks about how the city will be taken and the houses plundered and the, the women assaulted and half the city sent into exile. It's just this horrific picture of violence and brutality where God's people are, are weak and, and defenseless watching this horror show happen to them. And I, I feel like that feeling, I, I have been able to kind of tap into that feeling the past few days. I don't know if you have this sense of you feel so helpless in the face of evil, in the face of brutality in the world. In fact, as I've processed this with 
people over the past few days, that's the word that has continued to pop up, is the feeling of, of being helpless, of you want to do something, but you don't know what to do. You want to fix this, but you can't. You want to undo that which has been done, but you can't. You're just kind of set to look on a situation helplessly. And that's the feeling here. That's the imagery here of God's people being helpless in the face of brutality. And yet, look at verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. That in the middle of this horror show, the Lord shows up and he goes out and does what they can't do. And he fights for his people and he defends them, he protects them, and he defeats his enemies. In fact, look at the result of verse 9 if you jump down a little bit. It says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. This means God wins and his enemies lose. And he and he alone reigns over the entire earth with no one to compete against him anymore. In fact, look at what happens to the city that was being attacked and overpowered and destroyed in verse 11. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security where God's people are saved. That's the picture, this picture where God comes in, defends them, and they are finally secure, finally safe, finally freed to live in a city and in a world that is not marked by senseless violence, that isn't marked by pain and suffering. There's finally security. And so what happens to those who have opposed God's kingdom then? Look at verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Now, that is a, that's a disturbing image. And it's meant to be. It's, it's a picture of judgment against those who are opposed to God's kingdom. It's a picture of judgment against those who are committed to violence and who are committed to exploitation and assault and destruction. And in fact, this whole plague is this kind of, it's this sweeping reality. In verse 15, it starts rattling off. This even is going to impact their animals. Now, you put all of that together, and here's what this means. This means that on the day of the Lord's return... He will come and he will defend his people. He will save his people. He will protect his people. And all those that are opposed to his kingdom will be done away with. There's this day of reckoning where he will hold everybody accountable. And in fact, th this, is not, this is not a um, recent kind of Christian idea. This is an ancient Christian doctrine that, get, that goes all the way back. In fact, um, if you look at the Apostles' Creed, which historians think was developed somewhere in the second century, somewhere around maybe 125 AD, uh, there's a part in there that says in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, and on and on. And it says he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. So the day of the Lord is this day when, when Jesus comes again to bring judgment, to save his people and, and to remove anything that, has, that is opposing to him or his kingdom. Now, I know you hear that and it doesn't sit well with many of us. 
and I'm guessing verse 12 is not the verse that you have like cross-stitched in your kitchen that you like look at frequently. It's a disturbing image because, you know, for, for modern people especially, the idea of judgment, if it feels so wrong. Because we, you know, of course, we, we're in a culture that so values tolerance and inclusion and, and being judgmental just feels bigoted. It feels, it feels icky. It feels wrong. It's like the, it's the unforgivable sin in our culture. You can be a lot of things, but if you're judgmental, you're kind of canceled. You're kind of done. And so the, the thought of having a God that's judgmental, that's punishing people, it feels, it feels backwards. It feels antiquated. It feels fundamentalistic, like fire and brimstone, just scaring people into doing stuff and, and spiritual abuse kind of stuff. It, there, so I, I understand that this imagery doesn't sit well with many of us. But I want to I challenge you to come maybe think outside of the box, if that's you. N.T. Wright is a, a world-renowned Bible scholar. He's anything but uh, kind of a fundamentalist. And I included a, a um, quote of his at the beginning of your bulletin that I think is really helpful. I'm going to read it to you. Here's what he says. The picture of Jesus as the coming judge is the central feature of another absolutely vital and non-negotiable Christian belief that there will indeed be a judgment in which the creator God will set the world right once and for all. The word judgment carries negative overtones for a good many people in our liberal and post-liberal world. We need to remind ourselves that throughout the Bible, not least in the Psalms, God's coming judgment is a good thing, something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned over. It causes people to shout for joy and the trees of the field to clap their hands. In a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and weak are given their due, is the best news there can be. Faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. Now, you hear what, you hear what he's saying. He's saying, in order for God to be good, he has to judge. It's not that his goodness and his love and his judgment are opposed to each other. These are two sides of the same coin. Because if you think about it, how could God be good and loving and ignore the horrors that are put in verses 1 and 2 of this passage? How could God be good and loving and turn a blind eye to abduction and gun violence and human trafficking and all the other things? It is his it is his goodness and his love that actually drives his judgment. And so his, his judgment, I know it is a sobering reality, but it is the hope of the world because it is this declaration that one day, someday, God will come and set things right. God will expose evil for what it is. He will unearth the lies. He will vindicate the righteous. He will hold people accountable who have not been held accountable. Because we can't do that. We can't fix the world. Only he can. And so it is a sobering reality, but in the end, everything will be made right. 
Now, as I've been kind of experiencing um, the past weekend myself, I, I find myself, I don't know if you're anything like me, I find myself constantly refreshing my phone, just eager for updates and desperate for answers, desperate for any sort of resolution to this story. And, I, and as I've reflected on what is it about, what is going on inside of me that is so desperate for resolution here? And I think what I'm longing for is for the full-orbed picture of judgment and and healing and resolution to take place now. I want this day today. I want this day yesterday. I want, I want the world fixed, and I feel it in my bones. I don't know if you feel it as well as why we're so heavy and aching as we experience this, this particular story. I mean, even last night, as we were putting our children to bed, I could tell one of our kids was particularly unsettled, and I asked them, like, what, what are you feeling, sweetie? And they said, I feel sadness. I said, why, why are you feeling sadness? And they said, because the world is so bad. And you hear your child say that, and you can't help but agree that, that this world is painful and broken. And there's so many beautiful and amazing things about the world, and yet there's so many tragic, horrible realities as well. And so we, we experience it, and we want that day today. We want it yesterday, and yet that day is not today. The day of the Lord is on that day, and it's a hard pill to swallow because we don't know when that day is, and we have to wait for that day, and on this side of that day, there's brutality, and there's suffering, and there's pain, and there's senseless violence and senseless evil, but the good news of this passage is that that day is coming That day is coming when the Lord will make things right, that the Lord Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead, and it is the hope of the world. It's a sobering reality, but it is good news in a world marked by exploitation and violence and sin. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment, and that's a good thing. It's a hard thing, but it's a good thing. But there's more here because the day of the Lord is also this day of renewal, It's a day of renewal. Throughout this passage, I'm not going to go into all the details here, but throughout the passage, you get this vision of on that day, the old order of things, the old creation is going to make, is going to give way to a new one, a whole new, a whole new structure, a whole new way of doing life, a whole new cosmos. And so look at, um, uh, look at verse six. It says, on that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique Day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. It's this kind of funky image of, of when that day comes, there's going to be no more darkness or frost or cold, that when the sun goes down and the world is dark, it's a scary place. And this is saying on that day it will be no more, no more darkness. No more monsters lurking in the shadows, but a day of light and of warmth and of goodness. And then on verse eight, in verse 8, it says, On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. It's kind of this 
image of a year-round life-giving river of water that's flowing out from the city. It's, the, it's, this nod, it's kind of this nod to the Garden of Eden. It's this picture of paradise where God is dwelling with his people and life is marked by a wholeness and life. And then I'll give you one more. At the very end, um, it's, it's interesting to me, verse 20. It says, on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And then in verse 21, and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts. And that, I was just thinking, like, that is such a bizarre, that's the end of the book. That's the end of this whole vision. That's the end of this whole book. And it's this, here's the great hope that even the bells on the horses are going to be written holy to the Lord. Even the pots and pans are going to have holy to the Lord inscribed on it. You say, why, why is that an interest? Why is that good? What is, what is that? And here's what's going on. This is saying that every square inch of the world is going to belong to God again, that he's going to reclaim and repurpose everything all the way down to the bells on horses and pots and pans. It's like in that day, the car that you're driving is going to be marked holy to the Lord. It's his. It belongs to him. The um, computer lab at the public libraries holy to the Lord. It belongs to him. The pyramid downtown, holy to the Lord. It belongs to him. Every square inch reclaimed, repurposed for him, for life, for flourishing, for a renewed and restored world. Now, you hear all this and you think, okay, well, that's really great. I like that. I didn't like the first part, but I like that. So, how do you know if this is all true? On that day, if you're going to get the river and the light and the holy to the Lord stuff, or if you're going to get verse 12, if you're going to get this horrible plague of judgment thing that this is, this is talking about. How, how do you know which one you're going to get? And the answer to that question is weirdly enough found in verses uh, 16 through 19. I don't know if you picked up on it when I was reading it. There's this really bizarre emphasis on the, this feast called the Feast of Booths. You see that? Uh, let me read verse 16. It says, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. It says the same thing in verse 18, that if you don't go and you keep the feast of booths, you're going to get this plague of judgment. And then it kind of underscores the whole thing in verse 19. It says, This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. You think, okay, this seems to be a pretty important feast. Why is this such a big deal? Why is this the line in the sand that if you keep the Feast of Booths, you're good, and if you don't, you're going to get this, you know, disturbing judgment thing? Well, the Jewish uh, people had three major holidays, three major kind of big-time celebrations. They were Passover and Pentecost and this thing called the Feast of Booths, and I didn't really know this until I was studying this passage this past week, but in Zechariah's day, the Feast of Booths was the big one. It was kind of the big daddy. It was the, you know, Super Bowl Sunday of, of, of all the different, you know, celebrations. It, was, it took place in the fall. It was a, a week-long party, week-long festival, and it came at the end of the agricultural year. So it was kind of when everybody gathered their crops. It was basically a harvest fest. Basically Thanksgiving, where we got all the, all the harvest, all the crops. We're going to have this giant week-long party to celebrate. But the reason why they're celebrating goes back to something in their history. You might remember, if you're familiar at all with kind of biblical stories, that 
God's people, the people of Israel, were enslaved in Egypt, and God powerfully liberated them and sent them into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. But they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And when you're in desolate wilderness, uh, there's no homes, there's no apartment buildings, and so they would live in these um, makeshift structures called booths. They were like tents. They were camping for 40 years through a wasteland on the way to the wilderness. And what did God do? He provided for them. They, they were in a place with no natural resources, no water, no crops, n- nothing, just, just wasteland. And God fed them, God nourished them, God protected them, God guided them, God provided for them. The whole point of this Feast of Booth thing is to get in touch with the fact that we are desperate and we are helpless and we can't provide for ourselves. And God alone is our provider for everything that we need. So you see, that, that gets to the heart of things. Because you can worship God as your creator. You can believe that God exists, maybe that he's your, your higher power. This is something very different. To worship God as your provider is what God is after. That he wants our hearts to get to a place where we realize we are desperate. We can't protect ourselves. We can't protect our loved ones. We have an illusion of control in this world, but we, we're, we're not in control. We really are helpless, and we are dependent on him for every breath, every heartbeat, every meal, every step that we take. It is all dependent on him, and he is our provider, and he is good, and he is generous. That's what is at the heart of this thing, and that's what God is after. And so here's what's really fascinating to me is that when you think about judgment day, our natural default instinct is to think, well, the way that God's going to do it is he's going to say, I'm going to love the good people and I'm going to judge all the bad people. I'm going to love the religious people. I'm going to judge all the non-religious people. And that's not what this passage is saying. It doesn't say that the good people are in and the bad people are out. The religious people who keep all the rules are in, and the bad people who break all the rules, they're out. That's not what this says. This says that the dependent are in, and the self-sufficient are out. The humble are in, and the proud are those who are out. Because here's the reality. If if we're really going to undergo judgment or scrutiny, if God's really going to assess our lives and take an inventory of our lives... All of us on this planet are in trouble. If God's really going to do an an in-depth analysis of our thoughts and our desires and our words and our deeds and our internet history and our bank statements and everything that we have done in this life, we're all in trouble. This is why there's this um, famous verse in Psalm uh, 130, verse 3, that says, but you, O Lord, if you marked iniquities, if you kept a record of all of our iniquities, it says, O Lord, who could stand? Meaning nobody could stand before you in judgment because we're all guilty. Nobody can undergo that level of scrutiny and come out on the other side and, and, and not be guiltless. And so God provides God provides. He sends his son, Jesus, and he says, Jesus raises his hand and says, I want you to blame me. 
for them. I want you to hold me accountable for them. And so what does Jesus do? He undergoes the scrutiny. He undergoes the judgment. He receives the plague of verse 12 on the cross. He rots on the cross. He gets thrown in a grave and he rots in the grave. And God's righteous judgment for our evil falls on him. And he gets canceled. He gets blackballed. He gets thrown out. Which means if you are in Christ, your punishment is over. There is no punishment for you if you are in Christ because he's paid the punishment for you. It would be unjust for God to hold you accountable for the same sins that somebody else has already paid for, which means if you are in Christ, judgment day has already come and gone for you. And what you have left to inherit is a world that is renewed, a world that is full of life and wonder and glory. That's what we have waiting for us. How do you get it, though? Dependence. It's to look at God and say, God, I feel like I'm in a wilderness. I don't know how to provide for myself. I don't know how to protect myself or others. I cannot atone for my own life. I can't atone for my own history. I, I, I don't have the resources to fix my life. I'm desperate for you, and I trust that in Jesus, you've provided everything that I need. You, by your blood, atone for my sin. You will carry me to the promised land. You will one way someday get me there step by step through this wilderness that I find myself in. That's what it looks like to worship God as your provider, dependent, needy. I'm in a wilderness, and I'm dependent on you for everything. Self-sufficiency doesn't say that, though. Self-sufficiency says, no, nah, I'm good. That's kind of over the top for me. I, I don't need Jesus to save me. That feels too uh, religious. I, I, maybe I'll cry out to God every now and then when I'm in a situation that I'm in over my head and I might need some help getting out of this or that, but I don't need a savior. I don't need a provider for everything in my life. And if that's you, this passage is looking at you and saying, okay, God, God will give you that. If you want to pay for your sins yourself, he will let you. I want to end with this. You know, as a um, pastor, I have the privilege of often getting to do um, officiating weddings, and I get to do premarital counseling with couples. And what's so fun to me when I get around a young couple is to see their giddiness and their excitement to tell the story of how they got engaged uh, because that's just kind of what everyone gets excited about. Everyone wants to hear the story, and they want to tell the story to everybody. Everyone wants to know, like, was this a, uh, was it a surprise? Did, did you know this was coming? Did you cry? Did he cry? Like, to tell us the, the story, and they love to tell the story. But as the couple in, you know, matures through their engagement process, they realize that there's a lot more to <laughs> the engagement process than just the story of how we got engaged, there's this day that's coming in the future that we've got to start thinking about and planning for, and we've got to figure out, okay, where are we going to live, and how are we going to make money, and do you want to have kids, and how many kids, and there's all these questions that we've got to start figuring out, and because the whole tra trajectory of their lives is now arced towards that day, and they can look back on their engagement story. They can look at their rings, and those rings have secured something for them. Those rings have have purchased something for them, but what they are leaning towards is that day. They're leaning towards the very thing that those rings secured. That's why all this matters. 
because I know not everybody in this room is a Christian, but if you are a Christian, that is the, that is the arc of your life. You are arcing and bending towards that day. And you can look back at the cross and you can look back at the resurrection and that is our engagement ring. That is what has secured us the hope of that day to come. But, but our life is bent in that direction and therefore we live in light of what is to come. And so what does that mean for us? Here's what it means. It means that we worship God even in the midst of brutality. It means that we pray for our neighbors and we pray even for our enemies. It means that we care for the vulnerable. It means that we say no to our own sin and we fight the evil in us. It means that we give our lives away in service for the renewal of the world. It means that we wait. It means that we lament. And it means that we hope. That is our day to come. Let me pray. Father, we don't like to wait. And we don't really know how to lament. And we don't really know how to hope either. And so would you take this image, as strange as it is, as confusing as it is, as disturbing as it is, and would you press it deep into our hearts and into our imagination where our very lives might be reoriented, where we might know that this world is, is, at least in its current form, is not our home, that we are exiles here, and yet you have not abandoned us, and you will one day come for us and set the world to rights. And so, Father, our prayer is come, Lord Jesus, and come quickly. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's